John chapter 1, we are picking up in verse 1 of John chapter 1. We read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we skip down to verse 14, and we continue with this theme. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 16 we read, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, for though the uh, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word who was with God is how the book of John gives us a description. The Word who was with God and who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And this story, this uh, becoming flesh, we see uh, in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That flesh there, becoming flesh, is where we get the term incarnation in flesh. Enfleshment uh, is kind of what it's what it's working out to be, and this, the Word of God, who is God, Christ the King, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. This is the miracle of Christmas. This is the thing that is unique about our message as Christians. It's an extraordinary statement that God would become a man. You know, as we look, a, look across the religions and cultures of the world, we see that the majority of them are about God, a man making his way to godhood. You're living a life in a specific way, trying to abide by certain rules to upgrade your status, uh, you know, in this life so that you can make your way to become a god. This is not only, uh, you know, the message of many of the polytheistic religions. You know, we have things like Hinduism, where you're, there's the ideas of, of reincarnation and you're hoping to come back and upgrade your life each time as a, a higher form of life. Uh, you know, we have these sorts of uh, thoughts that even extend to the, the religions that uh, we would say are outside of Orthodox Christianity, things like uh, uh, Mormonism. Because the way that Mormonism doctrinally comes down to is says that you ultimately you work towards becoming a god and and it's a little g god but you're still kind of on your way in uh, to, to that level of that status. 
But the story of Christianity is that God instead becomes a man. He comes down to his own people, humbling himself, making a way where there was not a way. It is in this extreme humility, in this extreme poverty, that we see the great love of God for his people. That God would love his people so much that he would put off his own glory. That he would humble himself, coming in the form of a man. And as Philippians tells us, more than a man, as a servant, the lowest Christ did not come as a king, fully at a mature age, entering in on a white horse into the city and saying, I am God and I am here to rule you. Christ did not come as a military leader, leading an army, seeking to destroy all those who would oppose him. But instead, he comes through humility. He comes as someone who we would easily pass over, who would be unrecognizable had it not been for the extraordinary life that he lived. The extraordinary compassion and care that he showed to those in his time upon the earth. It is this life, this incarnation, that sets Christianity apart from so many other philosophies, religions, perspectives. It's an extraordinary difference. And this is exactly how we are told that Christ would come. This is the promise of the Old Testament, that there would be humility, that there would be this promised uh, promised Messiah, this promised uh, idea of God becoming a man. We read some of the prophecies that were given to those in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, of course, we have uh, these two noteworthy ones that come up around this time of year. We find here in Isaiah seven fourteen, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we've said, looked at in other places, it means God with us. God with us. Later in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Again, we see the promise of a child who is to be given. One who will rule forever. One who will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those titles are things that we desperately need. 
as, as people. We need a wonderful counselor. Because we are tempted so easily to follow our hearts. We are tempted so easily to react violently. And so we need to be under the Prince of Peace. We're so tempted to put ourselves in position where we have a temporal view. But we have an everlasting Father who calls us back. And reminds us that eternity is now. In Micah chapter 5 we read, Again, of the prophecies. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The idea here is that this Old Testament is full of the stories, the promises that God would be with us, that he would dwell with us, that we would be among us. Beyond the promises of the Old Testament, we see that it is the claim that Christ made himself. It is the claim that he makes himself. In John chapter 6, verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. You know, in our world, we try to live without bread because it's supposed to be better for you. And, you know, too much carbs is like horrible for you and you know, leads to all sorts of bad things. It tastes good. I'm totally for bread. You should have as much bread as you want. It'll be amazing. It tastes awesome too. But in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, bread is life. It is what is a part of the staple diet. Bread is provided for even the most poor person. If you have a little bit of water and a little bit of uh, flour and you have heat, you can make bread. That's all you need. Even the poorest of the poor can still have bread. But Jesus himself says, I am the bread of life. What you think you've been depending on, it's not the thing that will ultimately sustain you. I am the true bread of life. Beyond this, he goes in John chapter 8, verse 12, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. That illumination that goes before us, that shows us the dangers that are in our paths, that shows us the things that are ahead that we cannot possibly see without that light. Without Christ, without the illumination that he brings, we are in trouble. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It is Christ's claim that he is the one who ultimately shepherds us away from danger. He shepherds us to living waters. He shepherds us into green pastures. He gives us the ability to rest, to lay down. As the good shepherd, he does so at the expense of his own life, he tells us. If you have to be worried if he is a good shepherd, you can look quickly to the cross and see that he is the greatest shepherd and that he is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And as such, We should recognize his goodness. 
and pursue Him and obey Him. Although He lays down His life, even death itself cannot overtake Him. In John chapter 11, He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus' claim is this. I am the resurrection and the life. This is, all of these claims are exactly like that first claim regarding the bread. You think that you can have a life apart from me. You think that you can do it your own way, Jesus says. He says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, apart from me, there is no life. You might think you can have life. You might think you do have life. But apart from me, there's nothing. The claim of the scriptures is that in the presence of God is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We cannot even begin to comprehend that. But apart from him is poverty, weeping, darkness. If he's the light of life, if he is our illumination without him, we are lost, hungry, Poor, broken, confused. And so then Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Definitive statements about who he is. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Absolutely. This means that we cannot come and say, well, I have my own way, or I have my own truth, or that's your truth, or I'm going to live my own life. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. If you are not operating with his way, with his truth, And finding life in him, you have none of these things. But Christ has come as the good shepherd to deliver these things to us. By contrast, in John chapter 10, Jesus says this. Satan, the thief, the robber, he has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come to give you life. And life more abundantly. The incarnation tells us that we need not be confused. That there's only the fullness of life within Christ. The true nature of life within Christ. If you're feeling robbed, if you're feeling upset, if you're feeling bitter, if you're feeling angry, well, that's probably because Satan's stealing from you. He's trying to destroy you. 
But Christmas demands that we refocus our life as we sang there. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And look full in his wonderful face. Focus. When we are focused there, we find ourselves in a place of joy, peace, rest. Christ makes these claims that his his incarnation was for the purpose of ruling and reigning over all. Not only does Jesus make these claims, but the, the New Testament continues to make these claims. In Romans chapter 9, verse 5, we read, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all. The declaration of Romans is that Christ is God, and he is over all. And then it goes, comma, blessed forever, Amen. It lays it out there to say, like, here's this statement. And then it puts it in the context of, like, when Christ is Lord over all, he's God and he's over all, then you are going to be blessed forever. Amen. We agree. So be it, is what this translates to. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter writes, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The declaration of Peter is that Christ is God and Savior. More so, in John chapter 20, verse 28, we see the declaration of doubting Thomas who heard through his friends, his fellow disciples, that Christ was resurrected. Who had heard that Jesus was alive, but yet withheld his belief. He withheld releasing his heart to be open to the possibility that Christ was alive. But upon glimpsing the risen Christ, upon seeing the hand, the nails in his hands, or the, the, the holes there from the nails, and, and the hole in his side, as Jesus explains to him, you know, here, look, come and feel. The declaration of Thomas is this, simply, my Lord and my God. His, his response isn't, I don't understand how this is possible. I don't understand how these things worked out. I can't believe you're here. He simply says, I, I'm undone. I don't know. I'm undone. I don't have an explanation. You must be who you claim to be, my Lord and my God. And so it's clear that the miracle of Christmas is God becoming a man, the incarnation. For our sake. But the real question is, what, what was the purpose? What, what did it accomplish? What did it do? It's great, God became a man. 
But what then did it do? First we see that it brings mankind a clear revelation, a clear picture of God. Now, up until the the incarnation, up until the coming of Christ, God had spoken to man, both through humans and angels, but man had failed to grasp and understand God's love and his purposes, his instructions. And so there was a need for, for clearer revelation. There was a need to communicate more fully the plan. Now, if I wanted you to, to get to know me, right, I could, I could do several things. I could kind of let you observe some things from a distance, and I could give you a couple insights, you know. It's like, oh, here's, a, here's an out-of-context tweet, and here's like another, another little a photo here and there that might tell you something about me. I could do it most faithfully, though, uh, if I sent someone on my behalf, a representative. That's, that's a representative, right? And say, oh, here, you're, this person is representing me. Paul did this many times when he had people delivering the letters. He said, you know, take the letter. Oftentimes in his, in his letters he would say, take this letter and, and, and greet the letter bearer and, you know, receive them kindly. Treat them as you would treat me. Like, great. That could certainly be uh, the way that Paul would do this. And, you know, oftentimes that also he introduced himself through these letters. But the only way that you're truly going to know the sender of the letter, if your only way you're truly going to know me is if I come to you myself. And I say, look, like, I've, I've let you observe from a distance and you've seen these things about me. And I've sent someone on my behalf and they have explained a little bit more. But the only way that you, you truly will know me is if I say, okay, you're, you don't get it. You don't fully understand. So I'm going to have to come to you and explain. I'm going to have to come and straighten things out. I'm going to have to come and reveal myself to you. And so thus, the book of Hebrews opens this way. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Right? These men that God had given to hear from him. He had given his word to them. But then we find in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so the claim of Hebrews is this. God said, I've sent you the messages. I've sent you people on my behalf, but now I've come down myself to reveal myself to you. God did all of these things. 
He, be, he was the Word. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what John claims. No one has ever seen God, John continues in one eighteen. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And then we see in Hebrews 1 that Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And so He comes and dwells among us. Now the Incarnation, it of course brings man a clear revelation of God. But it also brings forth for us a true understanding of, of why he comes. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, he says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The point of the incarnation, the point of God becoming a man and dwelling with us, was so that we might become his children. More than that, it brings man to the knowledge of what our relationship to God must be and to each other. As children of God, we're brothers and sisters then. And so we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The incarnation brings this about. This is the miracle of Christmas. That we know that we are children of God, and then we know how we ought to be in relationship with God and with each other. It also brings us the power to live as we were created to be. First John or excuse me, John chapter one, verse twelve. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the power to become children of God. As he has created us, he has given us the power to do so, the enabling to do so. And finally we see this, of course. That the incarnation, the miracle of Christmas, brings us certainty of eternal life. In John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the end goal. That we would have eternal life. That we would know Him and enjoy Him. That we would be brought to a place where we see His kindness, His love, His care. 
It's an extraordinary claim, but if this is who he claims to be, we must respond in kind. This is why we have songs that have developed over the centuries surrounding Christmas, where they tell the story of the incarnation of God becoming a man. And then they, the, the chorus of these songs thus becomes a doxology of sorts. First, the theology, here's what happened, the incarnation that was brought about, the way that Jesus was brought into the world for our sake. But then we see the response. Oh, come let us adore him. It doesn't say like, thanks for that logical action, Jesus. We see how that worked out great and it was really nice of you, and we'll decide if we think that's a great idea, if we want to respond. That's not the chorus of the songs. It, it says, if this is the truth, then the response must be, let us adore him. The truth of the scriptures, the truth of what God has done, must then lead us into a place of worship. It must bring us to a place where we see who he is clearly, and then we respond rightfully. Now, to be honest, even those who were with him most closely, like, they didn't get it. They didn't get it a lot of times. Right? We've got the disciples with him. And they're like, most of them have spent their entire careers like fishing. They're out on the, on the waves and, you know, they're on the lake and they know what's happening. We find at one particular instance, they're in the waves and it's getting a little rough and all of a sudden they're overwhelmed. They f feel like they're in too deep. These, these men who are like masters of, of, you know, of the sea, who know how to navigate, who know how to get themselves out of some jams, all of a sudden they are masters, you know, they're masters of this, and all of a sudden, they're overwhelmed. And their response to being overwhelmed, their response is to go and wake up Jesus and to be like, don't you care? Don't you see what is happening? Don't you understand the trouble that we're in? And Jesus is there, like, sleeping, relaxing. And their accusation is like, you don't even see what we're going through. You don't care. You don't understand. Don't you see, Jesus, that we're in over our heads? We know this lake really well. We know what we're doing here. What's the problem? How come you don't care? And Jesus, he, he gets up. And he does a couple things. First, he rebukes them. He just calls them straight out. Like, you guys are of little faith. You guys don't understand truly who I am. And then he goes out and demonstrates who he is by calming the wind and the waves simply by speaking. 
putting everything to a calm. The simple word peace. Be still. And everything calm down. And I think oftentimes you and I are in that same place where we kind of have an understanding of like, oh yeah, like we get who you are, Jesus. You got the, we know Christmas, great. You did all these great things. There's a miracle of Christmas. It's amazing. You've accomplished these things on, on our behalf. You know, we know it was promised and, you know, you're doing your thing. Great. Sounds good to me. Like, But the reality is, is that Jesus is kind of helping us be shaken for a moment to receive that word of exhortation. You of a little faith. You see, in that moment, the disciples were probably like realizing like Jesus could help them. That's why they went there. They're like, well, look, we're out of, we're, we don't know what we're doing, but like Jesus might have an idea. Like we've seen him do some crazy stuff before. But their accusation is this, you don't care. You don't care. See, but what Jesus knew all along is that he cared infinitely, more than they could ever realize. And that ultimately... Ultimately, Jesus would be put in a place where he would be so overwhelmed, so in trouble, he would be completely enveloped by the wind and the waves of God's judgment. He would ultimately sink so that these men could have life. This was the point of the Incarnation. He would go to the cross knowing fully that he was going on a one-way trip to die. To be sunk and to pay the price for their sins so that these men, that you and I could have the confidence to say, I know Jesus cares because he was willing to, to go down with the ship so that I would never have to experience that type of terror. I would never have to experience that type of fear. And so as we consider the truth of Christmas, as we consider the miracle of Christmas, it's, it's weighty. It's full of meaning. And it's not just about believing the right things, but seeing Christ clearly. It's okay if we're in a position where we're in the spot now. We're in the boat and we feel overwhelmed and we're, we're saying those things to Jesus. Don't you care? But don't you believe that he doesn't? Don't you believe for a second that he doesn't care? Because God became a man and dwelt among us. God became a man and went to the cross for us. Demonstrating his care. He gave everything so that we might see him clearly. And it's in that moment when we recognize him that we are called then to respond. When we see him say to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. That we have the same response that the disciples then had there. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this? Now, of course, we know 
He is Christ, the risen Lord. And so we worship. Let's respond. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. We know that it is your kindness that brings us to repentance. It is your kindness, Lord, that shows us your love. Lord, you have been so gentle. You've been so loving to us, Lord, even when we are in positions of hardship and confusion. Lord, even when we are frustrated, you are there reminding us so faithfully, caring for us, showing us your love. Lord, you're reminding us of your love. And and Lord, you're acting as the good shepherd. You're acting as the light of the world that illuminates that dark path before us. And so, Lord, we want to say thank you. We want to respond. We want to come under your protection. And we want to treasure you so deeply this morning. And so, Lord, work in our hearts and call us to respond now. As we sang earlier, We want the things of the earth, of this world, to fade away, to grow dim in the light of your glory and your grace. And so, Lord, we want to see, we want to catch a glimpse of your glory. We want to have our our hearts and our minds be set upon you this morning. And so, Lord, direct us. We pray. We love you. Amen.